If you have your Bibles with you, uh, why don't you grab them and turn in them to Matthew chapter 6. And I have three things to say before I read that, if I can remember all three. I think I can. Uh, The first one is today we're having a um, a great Thanksgiving dinner. It's soup. No, it's not soup. <laughs> it's turkey, and it's going to be awesome, and uh, there's other things too. Uh, even if you didn't bring anything, what a great time of fellowship, so please stay. Everybody is welcome to stay. There's plenty of food, and we're just going to have a nice time of fellowship after the service today around uh, food, so please stay. Second thing uh, I want to mention is the turkey trot. Again, we mentioned it this morning, but I just want to encourage you to be a part of that if you can. Uh, next Saturday morning at 10 a.m., um, don't let the cold stop you. If, if you need any motivation, like I'm like this super old, bald guy from Florida, and I'm going to go. So, <laughs> And it's going to be not 31, but more like 19 degrees at 10 a.m., but that's okay, you know, right? We can bundle up. It'll be sunny and no wind. It'll be great. So be a part. And then we're going to come here and have fellowship. And I guess what I really want to say is it'd be awesome if you would invite somebody because what we're, we're trying to do with this is really try to get to know the community a little bit better. So use this as an opportunity to grab somebody who likes to run or likes to do the walk and, uh, and, and come. It'll be a nice time of fellowship for the whole church. And lastly, of the three things I want to say, and I don't do this often, I don't mention people's birthdays often, but uh, this one's a special one and it was today, so I will mention that Donnie is 80 years old. Donnie Whitaker turned 80 years old today. Not yesterday, we had the party yesterday, but it's today. So if you see Donnie, make sure you say happy birthday and happy birthday to you, brother. So, all right, so the, the word of God, Matthew 6, verses 31 through 34, that's our text today. And we are, this is our last sermon on the Sermon on the Mount this year, and then we'll, we'll go other places for a while. But it says, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all those things, all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's turn to the Lord for help this morning. Father, we come to you this morning and we pray that you would open our eyes to the wonderful things that we see in your word. I pray that you'd help us to see them and believe them and apply them to our lives. Lord, I pray that your people would leave here today trusting in you to a greater degree and worrying less. That we would, we would be Christians who know that our Heavenly Father cares and we would, we would example that, we would demonstrate that by our trust in you even when we don't know what tomorrow holds. We, we know you, we trust you. I pray for your help this morning. I pray that this would be a nourishing meal for your people that you would, you would strengthen us. You'd give us a renewed resolve to see things completely different, to see things as your word has them, to see things as they really are. So I pray for your help. And I pray for any who are here this morning that are really hurting and those who will hear this message and, and, and think in their hearts, but you have no idea what I'm, what I'm going through. Lord, today I pray that you would so encourage that brother or sister that they would leave here, even if, even if their suffering is great, trusting in your providential, loving 
care. Help us all, Lord. We need, it. We need this word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Way back in 1994, a popular pop singer, and I don't think I'll say her name just because I, I don't want to, <laughs> but she wrote a song describing her criteria for finding that special someone, okay? In that song, she makes it clear the kind of person she's looking for. She, she does like hit on things like affection and romance and honesty and loyalty and integrity, etc. She hints that those good qualities are insufficient for who she's really looking for, for who ultimately will be her Mr. Right. So she comes right out and says it, okay? And this, this will give the song away. Well, maybe if, if you're 1984 is a long time ago, but... The, the boy with the cold, hard cash is always Mr. Right. Do you know the song yet? Okay, good. That's good. <laughs> why does she think this? She actually answers it. She actually answers why she thinks this way in the song. And it's kind of the point of the song. It's because she was living in a material world and she's a material girl. <laughs> there you go. Back in 1984, people might have been reticent to say that out loud. But she was merely describing the way that the world thought and the way that the world actually still thinks. Even though we don't like to say that out loud, it's the way the world has always thought. I mean, she actually had a point. If life were purely material, then it makes sense that we would seek material things first, right? I mean, if, that's, if life is all about material, that's what we should be seeking, our treasure would be here, materials that we could touch and store and save. That's where our minds would be set, right? We would set things on things or set our minds on things of the world. That would be the criteria for our life choices, even some of the biggest choices we make, decisions we have to make in life. It would be whether that move or that decision or whatever would bring more material benefit. That makes sense. That's perfectly reasonable unless there is more to this life than just this life. Unless there is a God who loves us and cares for us and provides for us an eternal treasure, unless there's more to this life than just this life, it makes sense that the materials would win the day in our hearts. So the song makes sense. This, that material girl who believed that she was living in a material, a merely material world, was seeking material. From her perspective, that makes sense. We have spent the last several weeks thinking through a very different perspective. The perspective of Christ. The perspective of truth. Reality. Jesus has a lot to say about, a, about us, to us, and about us, and about our relationship with this material world. Along with its wealth and its values and its passions. The focus on this begins way back in verse 19, where Jesus tells us not to lay up treasures on earth, but instead lay up treasures in heaven. And then he gave three reasons, right? First, earthly treasures or earthly materials, they rust, they decay, they're stolen, they're lost. Heavenly treasures are secure. And second, where your treasure is, there is your heart what we see as most valuable, our perspective, as it were, is what determines our treasure. And that means that we will either walk in the light and see things as they really are, or we will walk in darkness, blind to the reality that there is more to this life than this life. 
The third reason is that we cannot at the same time treasure both God and mammon. One of them, or money or possessions, one of them will win the day in our heart. It will sway us. Verse 25 seems to change the theme to anxiety, but it's not different. He's not changing the theme when he gets to verse 25. In fact, I think it's all the same. We are anxious about what we are treasuring. So if our eye is on Christ and our treasures in heaven, we won't be anxious for things like food and clothing and money. But if we live in a merely material world and we are material people, we will be most anxious about those things. We will be anxious about those things most. So this is all one big discussion. And you know what it's intended to do? You know what Jesus is after here? He wants and intends to change the way we see things about life. In fact, I think what Jesus says in verse 19, it's exactly what he says in verse 33. I think they're the same thing. Lay up treasures in heaven is essentially saying, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In between this main imperative or command are all the reasons Jesus has given. Last week, Bert Newman preached on part of this passage and he unpacked several of the reasons why we Christians should not be anxious about the cares of this world. Life is more than food and clothing. Jesus comes right out and says that. He says exactly that. Life is more than material things. And God cares for us. And we can see that care by the way he cares for things that he cares about less than he cares about us. Did you follow all that? We can look at at, at birds and flowers and see that God cares for them. And he cares about us more. And so from that, we see evidence that God cares for us. That gives us confidence that God cares for us. Another reason is that anxiety and worry cannot change things. You know this. You know that your worry doesn't help anything. You've never gone through this really difficult time in your life and got through it and thought, man, I'm really glad and really thankful that I worried so much. It helped me so much. No one ever does that. We see worry for what it is on the other side of a storm, fruitless, It causes damage. It's harmful. Jesus says that worry won't add an hour to our lives. It is a decidedly unhelpful response. And the final reason from last week for why Christians should not be anxious, you can see it at the end of verse 30, it's that it's not a mark of faith. Anxiety, worry, it's not a mark of faith. It's the opposite of that. Worry is the opposite of faith in God. Today we see more reasons why Christians ought to be completely different when it comes to what we seek, what our concerns are in this life, how we approach basic economic questions in our lives, like what shall we eat and how can I pay for that and will this need of mine ever be met? And the applications for this are broad. It can be material needs, relational needs, very broad. Today, we see how to approach those kinds of questions in a way that is right and that shows that you are essentially Christian. And I will explain that phrase, essentially Christian, as we go. You know what we should take away from all of this discussion? This part of the Sermon on the Mount? We should come away from soaking in this passage with a radically different view of money and wealth, and needs, and worry, and life, and God. Radically different. So different, I mean radically different from the world, from the way we naturally think. 
so different from the material girls and the material boys that we were. Our view should be so different that it's essentially Christian. So here's what I want to do with this passage. First, I, I want us to look at the next big reason why not to be anxious. And that reason is because the Gentiles seek after such things. And then we will wrap up this with the command, thinking about the command, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And I'm praying, I've been praying all week that God would do such a work among us that we would begin to see things totally differently. We'd begin to see them as they really are. So let's dig in. Why does Jesus say in verse 32, right? Verse 32. Yeah, why does Jesus say in verse 32 that the Gentiles seek after all these things? The word for that begins that sentence helps us to know the function of verse 32. It's another reason, right? This is why we should not be anxious, saying why should we eat? What shall we eat? What should we drink? What should we put on? You, you, should not be, you should not be that or anxiously ask those things because the Gentiles seek after those things. So how does that support Jesus' command? The word Gentile is the Greek word ethnos, and it means nations. The Israelites first, who, who were first hearing this, the Israelites who were first hearing this, they would catch exactly what Jesus meant. You are the people of God. You're not like the nations who do not know God. You're not like the nations who are essentially pagan. That's not who you are. Jesus used this argument already, okay? He's basically saying, this is not who you are. You're not like the rest of the world who don't know God. That You are, you are different. You know God. And he used this argument already on this, in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, look back with me at Matthew 5, 46-48. It says... For if you love those who love you, this is Matthew 5, 46. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? Do not even, and here it is again, same, same, same phraseology here. Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. It's a different subject, but it's the same way of arguing, Right? The nations, the world, who do not know God, act a certain way. They, they love those who love them. They greet their brothers, and they don't love those who don't love them. There's no special need of God's grace, right? There's no special need of God's grace in Christ for us to merely love those who love us. But we have God's grace in our lives, and so we should be massively different. We love even those who hate us. That takes God's grace. That's how the argument works. Those questions in Matthew 6.31 that the pagans anxiously ask, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, and what shall we wear? They're natural, reasonable questions that a person without the special, eye-opening grace of God and the ongoing work of God's spirit in their hearts and lives would ask. It is asked from a perspective that does not see God as the heavenly father who loves and cares for his people. It's the perspective of a material world, people who are essentially pagan. Without God working in this universe and in our lives in this way, providing and protecting, it makes perfect sense that those questions would be ultimate in our hearts, right? They, they would be the questions that keep us up at night. 
the, the questions that dominate our thinking, the questions that motivate and steer our lives. Practical, material questions would be the most important questions in our lives and worry would be about as natural as breathing. Again, it makes sense why a material girl would hold up as ultimate a, a purely material criteria for love and marriage. It's in keeping with a worldview that does not see God as a heavenly father, a father who cares as the heavenly father, the father who cares for his children. It's essentially pagan. Now, friends, I think we should feel conviction at this point about our anxiety. Jesus, I think Jesus intends for us to feel that. You are not like the world, people who do not know God. So why do you think like them? Why, why do you think that your provision depends upon you? Why do you have this, like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of theology? Why do you stay up at night worrying about all the what-ifs? As if you could control those what-ifs. Don't you see, the anxiety is not the fruit of God's work in your life. It's not the fruit of his spirit or the fruit of a biblical grasp of who God is and how he relates to his people, the anxiety is essentially pagan. And you might take offense at that. I, I, I used to live among in pagan cultures. I, I have been to places where appeasing the spirits is, is the name of the game. I, I've lived among people who pour out vodka and milk at the high places as an offering so that their cars won't crash on their way home. I have lived among people who throw bread into fire so that the fire would continue to be their friend and not a foe. I have lived among people who will not tell you their baby's name for the very first month for fear that it might jinx thing and the baby might die so they don't tell you the name for the first month and you don't ask. I know what that's like, the fear, the appeasement, the self-sufficient human response, essentially, essentially saying, I need to do this so I'll be okay. And I'm the first one to say that I reject that paganism. I reject it. And I think you do. It's, it's not true. It's not helpful. Paganism is not life-giving. It is death and godless. And I reject it. And I believe that 99% of you probably reject it too. But you know what the Lord convicted me of this week as I pressed into this passage? He convicted me that lots of the ways I think about my life are essentially pagan. I profess Christ and then worry in ways that undermine my profession of faith. I claim to know God as my heavenly father and then sometimes I go a day thinking I have to look after myself or no one else will. Or I'm so worried about tomorrow. I don't know what it holds. What if, what if, what if? I toss and turn, worried about this or that, questioning whether I will have what I need when the time comes for something. You, you know what I mean? You can totally relate to me, can't you? That's essentially pagan. We don't deny that God exists or deny truths about him, not out loud, but we live as though he doesn't have a part in our life, that he isn't the father the, the, the one who is benevolent and caring and providential. We have to stop viewing worry as a small, inconsequential character trait that we someday need to address. And we need to begin to view it as essential paganism and repent. 
Worry is natural to natural man. But if you are in Christ by faith, you're not that natural man. Everything is different for you. So you have to reject that old response. The way that you would reject full-blown paganism, that's how you should reject anxiety and worry and living as if you are in control of your life and everything depends on you. And if you don't think this all through just the right way and worry just enough, everything will crash. It's not you. You know something different. You know that your heavenly father knows you and knows what you need. Think of that. Your heavenly father knows. He's your father. If you are in Christ by faith, then God is your heavenly father. Jesus Christ died in your place out of God's love for you in order to make you his children. Jesus Christ died so that you could call God your heavenly father. Of course, he is father in heaven and he is that in relationship to all things. But that's not the point Jesus is making. Those who are in Christ by faith, those who are genuine Christians can call him their father. You've been born into a new family. When you were born again, you were born into a new family. And you were adopted into a completely new relationship with God. So for you, the reality of God, the reality is that God is your father. He is your father. Isn't that awesome? I mean, shouldn't that calm our anxious souls? Listen to 1 John 3, 1 through 3, just to support this love that God has shown us in making us his children. It says, see what kind of love the father has given us. This is 1 John 3, 1 through 3. See what kind of love the father has given us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And he goes on, this is a beautiful passage. God is your heavenly father. You are his children. Father, that's a personal term. It shows us that God does in fact care about the things that you need. I love unpacking every word here because it's so helpful to my soul. Father means he cares. He's my father. Fathers care about their children. That's the point. And he's heavenly, not earthly. He's not constrained by the same material constraints that you have or the physical constraints that you have. He's above that. That means he sees, he knows, he controls. He's our heavenly father. He, he knows what you need. He cares. He's a good father. It's a most encouraging thought. It's a truth that Christians alone can fully grasp. And it is a truth that as you do grasp it, and as you grasp it to a greater measure, it makes you sleep well at night. Even if there are things that would make the old, essentially pagan you, awake, stirring, fretting, spinning with anxiety. You see, if, if worry is essentially pagan, then resting in God's love and care and provision is essentially Christian. 
Jesus is calling you and me to be essential, essentially Christian, entrusting our needs to our heavenly father, knowing that he is above all things. He is heavenly and he knows our needs and he cares as our father for our needs. That should free us. It, it should free up a lot of my brain space that is often so occupied with worry and fretting. It should change everything. It should change what dominates my ambitions and my passions and my direction in life. When I finished seminary, I, I wondered what I would do with all the free time I, I, I had. When I, was in, when I did seminary, I had, I had three children. They were small. I had a full-time ministry. I had lots and lots of worries. So three and a half years, I read every moment I could. I stayed up many nights working on stuff. I, I carried around flashcards. I, I looked at these Greek and Hebrew flashcards every chance I could. I thought about seminary all the time. It was always on my mind. It was never far from my mind. Some tests, some exams, some whatever. Then one day I received a diploma that basically said, you're now free from seminary. You're no longer a seminarian. I mean, I, I, so I don't have to do the things I used to do. I, mean, I still read, you know, but I'm free from how it used to be. And my thought, I remember thinking, okay, so now what? <laughs> I've got all this extra space now. What do I do and I, I think that sort of illustrates what Jesus is doing in this passage and why he goes to where he goes in verse 33. Your trust in God frees you not to worry like the nations do. Your trust in God frees you from thinking that those questions are ultimate, the ultimate questions in life. You know, those questions relating to your material well-being, they no longer occupy the ultimate place in your heart and your life. So what now will occupy that ultimate focus of your life? If those things are no longer ultimate in your life, what should be ultimate in place of worry and fretting and self-seeking that naturally was ultimate, that's naturally ultimate to this material world? Our new perspective means seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness first. You are free from seeking your material needs first you are free from trying to be self-sufficient. You are free to seek the kingdom first. Again, this is essentially and exclusively a Christian reality. Look, look with me at how Paul puts it in Colossians 3, 1 through 3. Paul said, If you have been raised with Christ, sink the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Christians, things are different for you now. For, for you, for your life, for your mind, everything is different. Jesus went to the cross to make everything different from you. And he rose from the grave to make everything different for you. You are no longer that old natural man with no hope in this life or no hope when this life ends. Everything is different from you if you are in Christ by faith. Do you trust in Jesus Christ today? I hope that you do. He'll change everything for you, friend. But to the point of this passage... He changes this. You do not have to worry about the cares of this world like you did when you 
were that material boy or girl. You are raised. You can now set your minds on things above. You can now seek the kingdom first before your stuff, before your well-being, and before all those what-ifs, before all those unknowns over which you have no power. You can entrust your well-being to him, our heavenly father, and seek his kingdom. His purposes in, this, in your life and in this world, you can seek his righteousness first. I think verse 33, if you're wondering how to do that, right? I think it's a summary statement of the Sermon on the Mount. Another way to put that is if you're wondering how to seek first the kingdom and how to seek his righteousness, my short answer would be listen well to the Sermon on the Mount. This is what Jesus is teaching us. He is teaching us what the kingdom is like and how to seek it first and what it means to be righteous. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus teaching us these things And because your heavenly father cares for your needs and because you know that all materials around are fading and decaying and temporary, you can seek that first. So the message of Matthew 6, all the way back from 19, 6, 19 through 34, is that we should view the world completely differently. We should view money and possessions and wealth and even basic things, basic needs like food and shelter and clothing, radically, we should see these radically different from the way the world sees them. We do not seek those things, even those basic things first. We seek the kingdom first and we entrust our needs to our heavenly father, believing him for his provision and for his intimate care of our needs and our lives. Let me just wrap this up by thinking through what this means practically, what it means to live essentially Christian and and maybe also like what it doesn't mean, what it does mean and what it doesn't mean. And I have four of each. So this is my four by four practical response to Matthew 6, 19 through 34, how we apply it. So let me start with the four things you won't do as an essential Christian, four things you won't do. First, you won't lay up treasures in this life. Your heart will not be wrapped around the things of this world. You you, you will not see the accumulation of stuff as your ultimate good or your job or your savings or, or your retirement account as your ultimate security. You won't lay up treasures on earth. Second, you won't serve money. You, you, you won't go to work or work your cattle or do whatever you do for your vocation with money as your master. You, you do those things, you work hard, you work, but you, you do it differently, right? You don't do it just for money. Money will not be your master. Money will not be the ultimate governor of your decisions in life anymore. You will not serve money. Third, you'll not worry about tomorrow. I love how he ends this passage in verse 34. And I'm going to come back to it right at the very end as we wrap all this up. But look at verse 34. He says, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I love that. We hardly ever worry about today. Our worries are always about tomorrow, right? Uh, Dale Carnegie said, today is the tomorrow you worried about yesterday. It's the only thing that he said right, but he said that. Today is the tomorrow you worried about yesterday. If you live essentially Christian, you won't worry about tomorrow. Fourth, you won't seek your needs first. Or to put it another way, 
Your needs won't be ultimate in your mind and in your heart. They won't be ultimate in your decision making. They won't be ultimate in the direction of your life. They won't be ultimate in the reason you take a certain career path. That might be how the Gentiles live, but that's not you. You've been freed from that forever. That is not what you will seek first. So what will you do? Here here are four the four counterpoints to those four negative things. These are the four things you will do. First, you will lay up treasures in heaven. You will, you will live your life and aim your ambitions towards a maximum heavenly enjoyment. You will live as if you are eternal. You will live primarily for what is eternal and not for what is temporal. Second, you will look to Jesus Christ by faith. Seeking his kingdom and his righteousness means a lot of things. The whole, the whole Sermon on the Mount is about that. But right at its core is looking to Jesus Christ by faith and trusting him for his righteousness. Trusting him to make you his righteousness. Personal righteousness is not the path to Jesus Christ. Rather, Jesus Christ is the path to personal righteousness. You see the difference? If we seek first his righteousness, we will look to Jesus alone by faith. Third, you will seek first the kingdom of God. You will seek the things that are above, not the things on earth. Your new ultimate in your life and in your heart and in your mind, governing your ambitions and your direction. It's God's desire and God's purpose and his plans in your life and in this world. You will seek his kingdom first. Fourth, you will live day by day in utter dependence upon God. In verse 33, Jesus promised all these things will be added to you. It's a promise. It's a promise. And you know what it means? I mean, it means a lot of things, but it means you will not add them by yourself. They'll be added to you. You you trust in God for them. In other words, your life is utterly in his hands. And you're good with that because he's God. He's the father. Your sustenance for this life is in his hands. You trust in God. Now, one last word by way of application, because I think this is a lot to take in. It's so radical from our natural way of thinking that we end up wondering how to even begin applying this. And that, I think, is why Jesus said what he said in verse 34. So back to that verse. I read it once, but let me read it again. It says, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient is the day for its own trouble. So how do I apply this? How do we apply this? So that we begin to live like, you know, live like Christians and no longer like pagans in this area. In a phrase, day by day. I think verse 34 is super practical. It's, a lot of commentaries called it Pragmatic. It means you will, you will fight for this in your heart today. So tonight, when you, when you go to bed and your heart is filled with worry, you can push back tonight, right? Like, I'm going to push back on this by trusting God right now. You got this, God. I trust you. My life is in your hands. You're my father. You're heavenly. You care. You got this. And then tomorrow morning when you wake up and you think about all the what ifs, they flood, the, a thousand worries flood your mind and your heart. What if this? What if that? Fight that day for faith in God that day. 
day by day. We apply this day by day. God will give you the grace you need today for that trouble that you have today. Don't try to get ahead of all of this. Trust in him today. Tomorrow will be a new day. It will be a new day. And you know what? Here's the reality. Tomorrow we'll have new trials, new struggles, new problems. But you know what else? New mercies. His mercies will be new. You can trust him. Our same caring, loving, heavenly father will be there tomorrow as he is today. Your heavenly father knows. And so I just want to encourage you friends to trust in him. Let's pray. Lord, may we no longer live like the world lives. May we no longer live like, may we no longer live like the Gentiles, fretting, spinning, worrying, living as, you, as if you do not exist, as if you have no part in our lives, as if you are not our father. Help us to abandon all of that, reject all of that, and turn by faith to you through Christ, trusting you as our heavenly father. I pray that, Lord, that you would do such a work that anxious hearts that were spinning with anxiety as they came in would leave here calmly trusting in you, our heavenly father. And Lord, day by day this week, give us the strength to do this. Give us each day the mindfulness to fight back on our worry. We want to be a people who exemplify our profession of faith. We trust in a good God who loves us and cares for us. Let that show. In Jesus' name, amen.